and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Michelle Mace Curran led an impressive career as a fighter pilot during her 13 years in the United States Air Force. And we say her name is Mace because that's her call sign, and we actually will talk about that a bit today. So there's a little tease around call signs. And from 2019 to 2021, she flew as the only female pilot for the Air Force Thunderbirds, where she performed for millions across the country and internationally. I am one of those millions. I actually saw her perform in Annapolis, which is pretty cool. And they also did flyovers over a hospital where I live uh, during the pandemic. So we talk about that in today's conversation. Michelle was only the second woman to fly as the lead solo in the Thunderbird demonstration since the team's creation in 1953. And that really started her on this path of a desire, a strong desire to inspire and empower others. She'll talk about seeing young girls and being around women and the impact that 
that she would have on them when she took her helmet off and signed autographs. So that's going to come out in this conversation. And we talk about the mindset that she cultivated and needed as a pilot, the use of visualization as a tool and technique, the power of debriefs as a team. She'll talk about teamwork and also working as an individual pilot in today's conversation. And really, at the end of the day, she is trying to inspire others. She's certainly trying to help recruit for the military, which she feels gave a lot to her. And she is someone who I think you'll find to be humble, but also she doesn't mince words about what she cares about. We talk about the idea of being a badass and and how that often gets labeled and attached to women who are doing incredible things. So this conversation is rich. It's interesting because before we even started recording, Michelle and I spoke a bunch before we hit the record button. And then afterwards, we went on and spoke for another hour. And so that gives you a sense of who she is, how curious she is, how much she likes to learn, and also how much she likes to share. She has an interesting perspective that I know we all can learn from. So here is the inspiring Michelle Mace Curran. Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, where I thought we'd start is on this idea of transition and changing. Uh, you had what seemingly, I think most people in your world would say is a dream type job. Um, talk about what it's been like for you transitioning from you know, being in the cockpit and flying to being on stage and inspiring people and, and sharing your story and and being a person that is focused on empowering others. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. I'm glad we could could make this work. And I love that question. When I made the pivot from active duty after 13 years and, you know, flying the F-16 for most of that time, being a pilot for the Thunderbirds for the last three years, uh, I didn't realize how many people on the outside were shocked by it until I started to get that feedback. Um, It felt like definitely the right thing for me to do personally. And like you said, I was in what a lot of people look like as this, this dream job, right? an Air Force Thunderbird pilot, I think some people would put that next to like a little kid being like, I'm going to be Superman when I grow up or an astronaut. Like, it's just one of those jobs where you're like, yeah, sure. Not that many people get to experience it. Um, But what I always want to emphasize is that it wasn't that I was unhappy uh, being a fighter pilot, that I was being pushed away from the Air Force. It's that in that role specifically as a Thunderbird, you're not just a fighter pilot. You're you know, kind of the face of the military to the public. And a big part of what I got to do in that job was to inspire people. And some of those people wanted to be fighter pilots, but a lot didn't. But still seeing the jets fly and then meeting the pilots one-on-one for a lot of kids especially. And then with me being the only uh, woman flying for the team during that time, the girls and the women I was really able to connect with. And that was a thing that planted a seed for them on what they could go do in the world, whether that was aviation related or not. And that was so rewarding for me to play a role in that, that that was what kept me going when the season was long and it was another air show after another and it was hot and I was sunburned or whatever it was. That was the thing that kept me fueled and and motivated. And, you know, my time as a Thunderbird was coming to an end regardless of whether I stayed in the Air Force or not. It's normally two years. I did a bonus year because of the pandemic. And I loved that so part. They limit, so, they limit, go ahead. They, they, limit, they limit the amount of years you can do that? Yeah. So it's normally only two years, which 
there's some pros and cons to that. Well, the con is that there's constant turnover. Each winter, half of the pilots are brand new. So you talk about like trying to maintain a culture and a high performance level when each winter is spent teaching half of those people how to fly a demonstration safely. So there's a lot of demand on the team, you know, with that turnover. But the public side of things is very demanding and you get burned out doing it. And so they want people that are still passionate about it, enthusiastic about it. And we also spend about 240 days a year on the road, living in hotels, not with our families. So to do that for more than two years really burns people out and they start to lose that motivation and that passion. Were you clear at when you entered the Thunderbirds that you'd come out of it with this life of speaking and creating content or what was the vision? If you take us back, you know, five years ago and whatever the timing of all that was. No, definitely not. Um, five years ago before I even applied, that was right before I would have applied to the Thunderbirds. And it wasn't like this bucket list career move that I had always dreamed of. It was something that I was kind of aware of in the periphery and that when it brought, got, got brought up in conversation, it kind of intrigued me, just the level of flying and the cool mission that the team has. But most of my career, I didn't think I was actually a good enough pilot to fly in that position. Mm-hmm. And so I never really committed to making it a goal. I think subconsciously, I didn't want that accountability now that I reflect back on it. Um, and I, you know, my time I was in Texas, uh, stationed there in Fort Worth when I saw this hiring email come out from the Thunderbirds and it was actually like the last chance to apply before the window closed. I had just deleted the first couple without even opening the emails. Um, and for whatever reason, I opened that one. I read the requirements and I met all of them. I had the experience required and I just had this epiphany. I was like, this seems like it would be really challenging, but rewarding. And I'm in a spot in my career where I feel like I can actually go do this for the first time. So I went to my boss that day and he was just a great mentor, really supportive. I was like, hi, I know I've never mentioned this to you before. And also this application's due like next week, but what do you think? And he could have been like, I think you missed the boat on that with the timeline. But instead he was like, hell yeah, you would be awesome for that position. Like, what do we need to do to make it happen? And so we got that application and I ended up getting hired. What would you have been doing today if you hadn't done that? Oh, I mean, it would have changed so many things. So that's such a a big question. So I had a follow-on assignment from Fort Worth to go to New Mexico to the schoolhouse where they teach new F-16 pilots. So I would have spent the next three years living there. It's in El Maguardo. It's a smaller town, smaller city. I don't know who I would have met there, what opportunities would have opened up from there. I would probably still be in the Air Force, I would guess, at a different assignment at this point. And instead, coming to Las Vegas, which is where the Thunderbirds are based and where I live still now, I met my husband uh, quickly after moving here. We got married six months later because when you're in your 30s, you know you know. And that has kept me in Las Vegas because I have a stepson and his mom is here. And like it's so meeting him and, you know, all of a sudden having this family, that was a huge pivot for me and completely changed my focus. So that was one thing. And then being part of this inspiration mission um, was another. Um, but still, I didn't realize 
until probably over halfway through my time as a Thunderbird that I was going to take a non-traditional path afterwards. I kind of started to know that I was going to leave active duty and pursue some other things because my passions were taking me elsewhere, but I didn't really get clarity on it until the pandemic actually, which ended up being great for me in the form that it, it kind of acted as a catalyst for me to really reflect on what I wanted, which I think happened for a lot of people. I think my plan before that was to go fly for the airlines. That's what most fighter pilots who leave the military go do. I could have flown for Southwest, been based here in Vegas, lived with my family here, had a fairly good schedule after a couple of years, made pretty good money. And that was the plan. And then the pandemic happened and the timeline to go do that shifted a year later because the Thunderbirds asked me to stay for an additional season just because that year was so weird. And also the airline industry was super uncertain at the time, right? Like they were laying off furloughing pilots. Like no one knew what was going to happen with air travel. And now it's, you know, come back and they need pilots left and right. And it's crazy. But that just gave me the space to really reflect on what I was passionate about. And through all the different things of flying and aviation and the military, the thing that kind of trickled to the top was that ability to inspire and impact other people in a positive way. And so I started just toy with the idea that I could, you know, occasionally get paid to speak and I could still have this positive influence on people. And it wasn't until about six months out from leaving active duty that I had someone call me and actually ask me to put a speaking event on my calendar that was far enough in the future. It was after I was leaving the military and they were like, hey, what's your speaking fee? And I had no idea. And there was this panic moment of, luckily it was via email. So I could reach out to a few mentors in the space. And that's when I actually realized that there was, like I could do it as a full-time business. And that gave me the little push to be like, I'm going to try to pursue this full-time. We'll see what happens. If it doesn't work, I still have a great resume. I can go do other things, but I want to see if this is possible. And last year it's, It'll be a year in March uh, 2023 here. And so it's not even been a year yet as of recording this. And it has gone amazing. I am so glad I took that leap of faith. It's been an incredible year. So much flexibility, so much creative freedom. And it's been so rewarding. Flexibility, autonomy, creative freedom, all that stuff. Those are the perks, I'm sure, the fee you've, you've figured some stuff out there. So hopefully financially it's beneficial for you too. What do you miss? What do you miss about flying? So I don't miss the, the flying that people think I would. I don't miss the flying upside down, the pulling lots of G's going super fast. I miss the really unique perspective on the world that you get from a cockpit. And you occasionally will get that on a commercial flight, you know, when the sun is setting over, over the desert of Utah and you can see all these beautiful formations of rocks and it's just gorgeous out your window. But being in an F-16 where you're like hanging out in front of the wings and it's this bubble canopy where you just have, you know, almost a 360 degree view. It's, it's like nothing else. And I miss the moments of kind of serenity airborne where, you know, you popped out of a thunderstorm where it was like dark and turbulent and now there's just this amazing lighting on the other side with like the wispy clouds coming down from the storm that just passed or the Alpine lakes 
that you would see going over the Rockies where you're like, I wonder if I could get there on foot, if there's a way to like that spot looks amazing. And I could pull the coordinates and write them down and go look later because I'm a, uh, a big outdoors person. So I like to hike and backpack and all that stuff. And just this like little peek into all that's out there that you don't really get uh, from other perspectives, I don't think. And I miss those just beautiful views, but more than that, I miss the perspective, I think, on the world that comes with that view. Yeah, there's a lot of research about astronauts and when they come back to Earth, their perspective on the need to take care of it, to cherish it, to uh, make sure that we're not ruining it uh, is pretty fascinating. I've never asked this question to any of our guests. If you had the opportunity to go to Mars, like, are you signing up for that mission? Are you, and, and I forget how long it, it's going to potentially take people, you know, whenever we, we make that leap, but I know it's a long, big trek and a big commitment. Would you sign up for that? So my husband, like random, or one of my husband's friends randomly asked me that. And I was like, yeah, for sure. And then my husband was like, I'm pretty sure right now it's a one-way ticket. Like why would, wait, what? You'd sign up for that? And I was like, oh, well maybe not if it's a one-way ticket, but it still is intriguing. I mean, I would, for sure sign up for plenty of other space travel opportunities. Um, I just, it's such an exciting time in that industry and in that world with, you know, the private space industry growing so quickly. And I was just talking to someone about this a couple of weeks ago where as a kid, I didn't, you know, I didn't dream of being a fighter pilot that kind of came later and I didn't dream of being an astronaut. And I went to college as a criminal justice major and planned to go work for the FBI and then I saw some jets and I, again, I pivoted then as well towards what felt like my passion. Um, and so I got, you know, into flying and I wasn't eligible for test pilot school because I didn't have a technical major, like an engineering degree or anything like that. So it's just nothing that I could pursue. And the last uh, NASA class opened up while I was on the Thunderbirds. And I had all these people reaching out like, are you going to apply? I was like, I'm not qualified. Like that might shock you, but I have a criminal justice undergraduate degree. I don't have a master's degree, much less a technical one. And have you read the resumes of the NASA astronauts? Like being a good pilot is just a blip on the radar of all of their accomplishments. And so it was kind of like, that would have been cool, but it's just not in the cards for me. And now with civilian spaceflight opening up so quickly, I'm like five years from now, 10 years from now, like you're saying there's a chance and all of a sudden it's like so much possibility, which is so cool. Oh, you're going, I, it's the, there's no question in my mind. I, maybe not Mars, but you're You're going to, you're going to be in space. Like that's, I think that's, that's happening. For yeah. You. If anyone wants to start um, contributing to a GoFundMe to send Mace to space, we can, I mean, it even rhymes like we can start one. We'll, we'll work on it. I want to go back just a little bit. You said something that piqued my, my interest and uh, you said, you know, it's it's a two-year commitment for you. You had three because of the pandemic. So there's this constant onboarding and training and transitioning. And um, what are some things that you think the Thunderbirds do well traditionally to get people up to speed, to get them on the same page, to get them collaborating? Uh, what worked in that training that might be applicable to businesses or other teams and organizations? For sure. I So for anyone that's seen the Thunderbirds fly or has seen any of the videos from the cockpit that I've shared, the level of trust between the pilots is like no other. I mean, the jets fly as close as 18 inches apart. 
there's times we're going, you know, close to 500 miles an hour in formation or as a solo pilot, like I was, we're doing these head on passes that look like a game of chicken where each of us is going 500 miles an hour. So that's a thousand miles an hour of closure towards one point. And so the level of trust that you have to have in the person next to you is just incredible. And then you're like, okay, you've been flying with that person for only a few months when you're in those types of situations. Like, how is that possible? And I think the Thunderbirds do a really good job of when you show up to the squadron, well, first it's competitive to get there. So everyone, you know, applies, you're not told you have to be there. So everyone's motivated to do as good as they possibly can at their new job. But the mission is, Hey Michelle, do you know, do you know how many people tend to apply for it? Is it, do you get any sense of the application pool? So for the pilots, um, that's really the only one that I have, you know, kind of stats on from what I saw just the few years I was there. So you have to be a fighter pilot already in the air force, not necessarily flying F 16s. You have to have a minimum number of hours that takes five or six years to get. And then you also can't be too old because the air force doesn't want to pull you out of a leadership role when you would be like leading a squadron, commanding a squadron. So it's actually a pretty small window where you're eligible. So the pool is not as big as you would think, but I think the couple of years I saw, we would get somewhere around maybe 30 applicants for two to three spots. Mm -hmm. Okay. Back to the more interesting piece, which is uh, things that they would do to help you all get onboarded and learn. Yeah. Take a, take a, yeah. So I think the first thing is just this common mission that came from the top down when you join the team and you're given the uniform and you're given the Thunderbird patch, which is very specific looking, there's actually a ceremony called a patch ceremony where everyone from the squadron joins together. The commander calls you up and he really explains the, I guess, the gravity of what is behind that patch. The team's been around since 1953 and people have lost their lives while doing the mission. Like so much innovation has happened through all the different airframes over time. Like there's just this legacy behind it. And he really imparts on people the responsibility that comes with displaying that, especially because they're so public facing. And so everyone gets the mission, but then another part of it is there's really specific standards laid out. Um, you know, we have our, like our SOPs and our ops manuals for pilots specifically, they are so detailed. It's it's insane. You feel like you after you read it, you're like, oh, I could for sure go do this. That's not how it works. It turns out it takes a few reps. Um, so the standards, the expectations of where you're targeting and what the outcome when, once you get proficient should be are so clear. So everyone's on the same page. And then there's this really high level of accountability and feedback around those standards. So I used to joke that we just practiced a lot. Um, that's what I was saying. People are like, I can't believe you go do that. I'm like, oh, we just practice a lot. And part of that is true. There's a lot of repetition and it's this building block phase where, you know, we start really far apart at higher altitude, get closer to together, get lower as that trust starts to form day in, day out, flying, you know, twice a day usually. Um, but every single flight, we don't just land and then like high five and go home. We go into a room and we do this debrief and we play a recording from show center from the ground where the crowd's perspective would be 
Like what would those, what would that maneuver look like to the audience? We have all of our cockpit footage. So you can see the exact parameters of airspeed, G-forces, altitude, all of those things. Um, we started flying with GoPros in the cockpits. So you could actually see formation distances and deviations between aircraft. All six pilots that fly in the demo are sitting in that room going through all of that. And the expectation is before the maneuver is played, before the video is played for all the truth information, if you're part of it, you go around the table and anyone that's involved fesses up to any deviations or mistakes that they made. And that's just the standard. So if, if my aileron roles are about to be played, I would be like, oh, I was, you know, a little bit late. I was a split second late with my smoke, whatever. And then we'd watch it and you'd be like, yep, that checks. And if there was an instructional fix from one of the ex more experienced pilots in the room, it would be given, you know, right there. And so there's none of that, like, saving face or or being ashamed when you make a mistake. It's kind of accepted that it's going to happen. And you learn from them and you grow from them. And that also creates this the psychological safety that builds that trust. How often would you think you made a mistake, but then you'd watch the film and actually see, no, I actually was, was spot on there. Would that happen? Or most of the time you kind of knew when you screwed up and, and were right. Uh, or were there times where you thought you screwed up and you actually looked at it and you're like, or your team said, actually, you did exactly what we, what we need you need from you there. Uh, so I would say most of the time, if you made a mistake, you thought you made a mistake, you actually did. I think one of the surprising things that you learned over time, though, is that what you thought was a big mistake to the visual naked eye that wasn't zoomed in on a camera lens, the person standing on the ground, especially if they weren't another air show pilot, you couldn't tell. Like a lot of the times I'd be like, oh, I was you know, way wide on that maneuver. And then you'd watch it and you'd be like, huh, it looks totally fine. And you mentioned debrief. And, uh, you know, we practice flying twice a day. Uh, so we also have the debrief. Do you all use visualization or any of those types of mental tools uh, to get in sync with each other, to really understand the show and, and sear it into your brain? Any sort of mental tools that you all would oh, use? Oh, absolutely. So we call it chair flying is our version of, of visualization. And you're taught that when you're brand new in pilot training, when you're just starting the Air Force's training pipeline, um, it's really the only way to get to the level of proficiency that you need based on the limited resources that the program has. Like you can only get so many flights, right? And if you keep messing up the same thing, they can only give you so many repeat flights before you're going to wash out of the program because of the limited resources. So instead, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing the night before or the weekend before, whatever, you would find a quiet place. And when it's like the bare basics, you're no kidding putting a poster on the wall that has like the cockpit printed on it with all the switches. And you're thinking through just the things on the ground of like all the ground operations. When I flip this switch, when I flip that one. And then as you get further on, you're visualizing, you know, more complex things. But I would no kidding sit in a desk chair with my eyes closed, pretending I had a stick and throttle and I would talk through all the different things. And once I was on the Thunderbirds, I still would do that if when you're really proficient and you've been flying a ton, you don't need to do that necessarily. But when you're new and you're learning or when there's been a big gap and your skills get a little bit rusty, like over Christmas break or something, I would chair fly after we would brief the flight because we would go through what the flight was for the day, you know, the weather, anything weird that was going on, the expectations, the objectives, all of that. 
beforehand. And then we would usually have like a 30 minute gap before we actually headed out to the airplanes. And people would kind of come up with their rituals that they did during that time. But a lot of times if I felt like I needed it, I would sit at my desk and I would just think through every maneuver and I would visualize myself out on the training range. Like what, th- what am I going to see on the ground in that spot? And what should the timing be as I fly over that one rock that I can see from the cockpit? What am I going to hear from the other pilots on the radio? Like when everything's going perfectly, what does this look like? What does it sound like? Where am I going to feel G's? All of that. And so every time you do that, it raises your experience level without actually having to go out and waste a flight making the mistakes. And I'm a big believer in, in that in general. And I do that kind of now with being a keynote speaker if I have the chance to get up on the stage during like an AV check and actually visualize the audience there and think about when I'm going to move where and when I walk on, how it's going to look, or even I'll just ask for photos in advance of the room. And it kind of takes away those first day jitters because your brain is like, oh, I've been here. I've done this. Like I already know how to, how to do it. Yeah. There's some pretty cool research around that, that your brain doesn't know the difference between visualizing it and actually going through it. I want to go to that word perfectly. And I wrote a book and in my book, I talk about perfect preparation and then adaptable performance. And I think the word perfect, a lot of people have been rejecting like, Hey, stay away from perfectionism. And yet when I study people that are risking their lives in some shape or form, their preparation, they're usually focused on perfecting it. And even beyond life and death, high performers, musicians, stand-up comedians, athletes, they often try to be perfect in their preparation. And then they let go of that perfectionism when it's time to execute. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about that word and and when it might be useful and, and when it may be detrimental for you? I love that you kind of differentiated the two parts because I don't think it is black and white where you can be like, you should always strive for perfectionism or that's you know a, this terrible thing that's just going to weigh you down. I've actually written about this recently on LinkedIn. I think I even called the posts like the perfectionism trap. And because early in my career, I definitely... I was a perfectionist all around and that was not doable and it was exhausting and it kind of led to an identity crisis. Um, And I learned a lot from that, but now I see it as exactly what you said. Like you, you want to put in all the preparation that you can to get as close to perfect as possible. So you're striving for perfect. That's your target. But we, we would always say we never have a perfect flight. There's just deviations constantly. They might be tiny. They might be one or two knots of airspeed, things that no one else would notice, but you're never flying a perfect flight. It's impossible, but I'm still going to strive for that to be as ready to do that as possible. But then when I get there and I do make a deviation, I'm going to just accept it and keep going. I'm not going to dwell on that. We talk about compartmentalizing because things will go wrong in a flight, almost every flight. And they might be small and you're like easily, you can easily let them, you know, roll off your back. Or it could be something huge and you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I just did that. I can't believe that just happened. Like I'm, I'm on a check ride. I'm getting evaluated. I can't, I don't know what's going to happen when we land. This is going to be bad. If you start to let that narrative go in your head, the rest of your flight's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a mess. So as you gain proficiency and you really get good at kind of the mindset, you're like, well, that happened. Nothing I can do about it now. And you I used to actually visualize this little treasure chest 
where I would just open it up. I would shove the thing in there and close it and like kick it off the plank as it sank to the bottom of the ocean. And I was like, all right, what is the task at hand that I need to do now? Because dwelling on that is not helping the situation and I can't change it. So we'll deal with it after the fact. And I actually told my stepson, he plays little league and he's a pitcher and he he's gotten a lot better, but at first he would get really stressed out. That's a very high pressure position on the team. And he was only nine years old. And so he didn't really have the emotional capacity to just keep it together. And so we would talk about the little treasure chest and, you know, like when you throw a bad pitch, you can't undo it. Like getting wrapped around the axle about that does not help you. So like, let's put it in the treasure chest, send it off the plank and we could talk about it after the game. And he really loved that. I started talking about SpongeBob when I was telling him about it, but, um, and it worked like he, I would look at him when he would have a few bad pitches and I could see it start to snowball. And I would just give him this, like, put my hands down, like calm, calm. And he would like nod and, and it would be okay. And so that's just a child using that. And so I think it's valuable for adults, even in less high performance situations than, you know, flying a fighter jet. You mentioned him as a pitcher and when I think about you, there's you had these solos that you were doing by yourself. And then there's other times where I believe you're part of like the diamond and, and flying uh as a as a unit. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with a lot of athletes over the years, and I'm always interested when I talk to the golfers or the tennis players or the runners or the swimmers or the wrestlers, the individual athletes, they would always talk about they love that they can control their own destiny and that they actually felt as though their performance, good, bad, or or ugly was on them. And then I would talk to these team athletes, basketball, soccer, lacrosse, hockey, baseball is a little different because it's kind of an individual sport within a team sport, but they would talk about how they loved that. It wasn't all on them and that they could make other people better and they could pass the ball and uh, the team could do it for you. Were you more drawn to a solo experience or being part of a team? Um, How did you, uh, what resonated with you when you were performing? Well, that's tough. I would say both, but I, so I think I'm kind of introverted and I was super shy as a kid, but I kind of naturally gravitate towards the individual sports. Like I like running. I, you know, I've run some marathons. I like, I guess rock climbing is not a good example because someone's holding the rope and you really need that person. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, not your traditional team sports. Um, but I think both were really rewarding on the Thunderbirds because there were those moments where you would nail a solo maneuver that you've been kind of fighting with for a lot, a long time. And, you know, you felt that pride and you're like, yes, I finally got it. But I think it was more rewarding when it was a, a Delta, which is all six jets together when it was like a Delta maneuver that the whole team had been struggling with for different reasons. And all of a sudden you just stuck it as a, as a whole formation coming back and landing and being like, Oh, we nailed that today. That was a lot more fun to celebrate than me just having my own little party of about my one maneuver I did. So I think, you know, further into my career and into the Thunderbirds, the team stuff was, was more rewarding, even though I loved being a solo pilot because no one wants to fly looking to one side for 40 minutes. And so I got to do that for, you know, a few minutes here and there. And then I got to split off and, and do my own thing and look forward, which was really nice. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't think it's, you know, 
one or the other. They both have their value. And I can see why why both of the uh, kind of two categories you gave as examples say what they do. As I'm having this conversation, I've been fortunate. I lived in San Francisco in the Bay Area. So they had uh, Fleet Week, they'd call it. And we'd see all these air shows and it was always amazing. And then I live in Maryland. So in Annapolis, they put on amazing shows as well. And so I'm thinking about, it, I'm like, oh, I probably saw you fly in, in Annapolis, uh, which is really, really cool. Um, and I was on a boat watching you fly. <laughs> I might even have video of you flying. And um, I'm thinking about it though. And during prep for this, I believe you're the fifth woman to fly with the Thunderbirds and you were the only one on the team at the time mm-hmm. when you were doing it. And when I'm watching you fly, I don't, I don't know what gender you are as you're, I had no idea. I'm like, Oh no, that's a female pilot. No, it's, it's a, it's a jet. Yep. I'm focused totally. on that and in, inspired by that. Uh, I'm curious for you, like how much do you think about um, being the only woman on the team, being the fifth to fly with the Thunderbirds? Um, I've talked to some women who say I was just, I'm no different. And like, that's sort of how I thought about it. And then I talked to other women who will say, no, it's like really important that people know that I was the one in the jet so that they can maybe see themselves doing something uh, trailblazing, so to speak. Uh, how do you make sense of that? Yeah. So I've experienced both of those. So the first part of my career, I wanted desperately to fit in with everyone else and not be this person that stood out. I didn't want to be separated. I didn't want to be addressed separately. Like I would be in a briefing room with the whole squadron there, you know, like 50 pilots and I might be the only woman and whoever's presenting would stand up and be like, all right, gentlemen. And then they would realize they would like make eye contact with me and they'd be like, and Mace, which is my call sign. I was like, dude, just go with it. Like, I mean, ideally you use something that works for all genders, but I'm not over here like holding a grudge against you. I would rather you didn't call me out individually. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, have the same respect as everyone else and the aircraft could care less about your gender. The enemy could care less about your gender, but going to the Thunderbirds, it's just really unique because that team's mission is the whole mission is recruit, retain, and inspire. And when you come to the recruit and to the inspire, I could connect with 50% of the population better than the other five pilots in the demonstration. And we would see it all the time. And, you know, the crowd might not know who's flying what jet, but when we landed and we took our helmets off and we, you know, walked up to the crowd line to do autographs and meet and greets, they for sure would know I had a braid that was hanging out. And I cannot tell you how. Could you see it? Could you, could you see like the reaction to that? Like, would would you be attuned to that and notice men, women, daughters? Like, did, was that something that you could feel when you'd interact with people? Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, it was, it was super apparent. So we, we would kind of spread out along the fence where the crowd was to sign autographs after a show and people would line up in front of each pilot And I would be like furiously signing autographs and taking pictures and talking to people and all this time. And I'd be like, man, I feel like I've been doing this forever. And then I would look up and I would look left and right. And all the other pilots would just be standing there because they were done with everyone who wanted to come see them. And I have like 50 people in my line still. I'm just like, well, this is interesting. Um, And there were some times when I was like, like, I just don't want that extra attention. I just need a break. Uh, It can be exhausting. But most of the time, 
there would be the really quality interactions among like kind of all the chaos where, you know, I could really feel the connection with one little girl and her mom would drag her up and be like, look, she just flew in that jet that you saw. And I could see this like light bulb turn on in her eyes. And it was so freaking cool to be part of that. And then I would have, you know, older girls or young women on social media, especially um, because I started posting these GoPro videos from the cockpit and they kind of evolved over time as I learned what people liked and I became a better video editor. And I was just doing that on, on the side outside of work kind of as a hobby because I, I always enjoyed being creative and there's not always a ton of space in the military for creativity. And so that kind of gave me a way to do it. And I started to gain like this traction on Instagram and this fairly big following. People love these cockpit videos. And the kind of the the viewpoint I defaulted to was this camera that was mounted on the side of the canopy behind my head. So you could see my braid sticking out of my helmet during all these maneuvers. So I'd be hang, you know, I'd be flying inverted and the braid would be hanging upside down from the helmet. Or I'd be doing this roll and the braid would be swinging with each point of the roll. And someone started a a ponytails and cockpits uh, hashtag and it just started to get a lot of traction. And so I would get all these DMs from, you know, girls in high school or early twenties or whatever, asking for advice, sharing their stories, sharing how inspiring it was. And just with social media growing, like it has, they had a direct line to me and it was really cool because I could tell the ones that I could really impact. And I would take the time to write back and be on the team for three years some of them started to circle back towards the end and tell me like what they had gone on to do because they had embraced advice I had given them um, or whatever it was. And it was just, it was just so rewarding to be part of that. Even just a small, a small uh, planter of a seed for someone. And so I got to do it on that platform and then in person as well. And I realized that it was an asset at that point you know, having gender diversity on the team 100% was making the Thunderbirds better able to do their overall mission. It's interesting. I just started writing, like, what are the qualities of leadership? And I think we often think of leadership in a, in the wrong way. Uh, we think of an alpha, we think of someone that sticks their chest yeah. out and, you know, like makes themselves large. One of the things I wrote down was, knowing when to fit in and when to stick out. Yep. And I think it's both of those, right? Like knowing, Hey, this calls for me to fit in and be one of the guys, so mm -hmm. to speak. Uh, and this actually calls for me to stick out. And as much as I'm shy and introverted, uh, I need to put myself out there um, because there's something bigger than me at play here. And it's causing, it's calling for me to stick out. Any, any thoughts on fitting in and sticking out and, and any more insight there? Yeah. I think that's, that's super wise to identify that because that can be something that's hard to identify. And a lot of people I think struggle with because there's some risk that comes with, with sticking out. You know, you're, you're putting yourselves out there, opening yourselves up to judgment and failure and all the things. And for me personally, I shied away from that early in my career. And I just wanted to fly under the radar, no pun intended, as much as possible. Uh, but then it was still uncomfortable for me to put myself out there just based on my personality further in my career. But having those interactions was just immediate feedback of like how impactful it was. And so that outweighed that discomfort. 
But I think in in any you know organization, to really be successful, you have to be able to transition between those two roles. And I think there's a lot of parallels there with transi- transitioning between when you need to just be a follower versus when you need to be a leader. And I think in the, you know, in the air show, I was a lead solo. So you put lead in front of my name. People are like, oh, you fly, you're in charge of the whole six ship. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Just myself and the other solo. I'm the decision maker for our, our little element of two jets, like timing, radio calls, all of that kind of stuff. And so I have to be very assertive and decisive. Things are happening fast, right? So I need to be on my game for that. But then when we, we, we would all join back up in formation into that Delta, all six jets, we would fly. I've shared a, a video of this on LinkedIn where I'm looking right during an entire loop. So I am, I don't look forward once to check where the ground is, airspeed, any of that stuff. I am just solely looking at the jet I'm flying next to. And that jet is looking or that pilot and that aircraft is looking to his right the entire time, not checking anything forward either. And we're on the left side of the formation the two far aircraft on the right side of the formation, both those pilots are only looking left. And the only person that has the full big picture of all of the parameters of this maneuver, including where the ground is while we go upside down in a loop and then point at it at over 400 miles an hour, is Thunderbird 1, who's leading the formation. So I kind of imagine that as like the CEO of a company who has this vision. And in our case, we're tucking into formation and trusting him with our lives. And then when we're not in formation and we're in these other roles and we're in charge of our own little, you know, sections or elements or flights, we are fully empowered to make the decisions we need to be able to make. And we have the confidence to do that. And I just think there's such a cool parallel there with that transition in the air show and in teams in general. Do you have any idea of what builds that trust and what um, takes away that trust? What gets in the way of that trust? I mean, a little bit is the stuff I mentioned earlier about just clear expectations and accountability. But I think we were able to do that in a way where people felt, you know, safe to grow and and make mistakes, which I think when I say that people are always like, you can't make mistakes. You're like making a mistake is hitting another airplane or running a jet into the ground. I'm like, well, of course, those are kind of unforgivable mistakes. What I'm talking about is like the little deviations that everyone makes. And really this culture that fosters confidence, but nips arrogance in the bud as soon as it starts to pop up. And giving that immediate feedback and that immediate correction when someone starts to skirt down that road is it, they can easily be corrected back and everything can continue where if you kind of just let it go and you're like, uh, I don't want to have that awkward conversation. I don't want to give that negative feedback. Like it's not that big of a deal. Well, now months from now it is a big deal. And that trust has really degraded. That teamwork has degraded. And now those roles get fuzzy and it can cause a lot of drama. And so I think being proactive with fixing stuff as it starts to stray away from the expectations is key. As you're describing it, it's like, all right, we're playing a game of chicken in the air. We're doing loops. Like a lot of people would probably say, Oh, Michelle's fearless. Um, what, what does scare you? What, what are you afraid of? What, where, where do your fears live and, and lie? 
so I think for a really long time, my biggest fear was failing and letting my parents down, the people around me down. Um, I kind of had, I think I've mentioned this a little bit. I kind of had this idea that fighter pilots were type A, all super assertive, like Top Gun Maverick shows, and they couldn't show weakness. And then especially add gender on top of that, you know, feeling like I had to prove myself as I was representing all female fighter pilots that would possibly follow in my footsteps. Um, there was a lot of pressure there. And my identity as a young pilot was totally wrapped up in my achievements because I had always been kind of this golden child, right? Like I did well in school, which allowed me to get good enough grades to get an ROTC scholarship. So I went to college on a full ride and I did good enough there to get a pilot slot. I did good enough there to get one of only two fighter jets for my whole class. And so I was just doing all these things that were difficult and at high standards and I was excelling at them. And so later on, I got, you know, to that first assignment and I kind of started to to have a identity crisis <laughs> around that and, and the achievements and, you know, realizing that there's a lot more to a person than just what they accomplish. And I don't even remember what your first question was now. I think I, I, it was about I tried to laugh. Yes. It was about fear. So fear. So then my biggest fear was failure for the longest time. And then I actually really struggled in my first assignment and it overall felt like a big failure to me. I also went through a divorce while I was there, which felt like the biggest failure, like the most visible, obvious failure I'd ever had in my life. And so I went through this period of like, I don't think I'm good enough to be in this career field. I'm kind of stuck in it because I owe the Air Force a contract. Like I didn't prioritize the right thing. So now I'm not married anymore. My parents are disappointed in me, all these things. But what came out the other side is that I kind of let go of that fear. But a good portion of my life, that was that was the answer. I think now, now my fear would be that I didn't really pursue my potential. That I kind of just sat back and took the easy route out and didn't go experience some amazing, fulfilling thing that I could have. So now I'm kind of always hunting for new opportunities. Not like I grass is always greener type thing, but like always being curious and open to these things that pop up, whether they're what I expected or not. And it's been super fun to do that and super fulfilling. And it's led to all these things I never imagined. And I don't, I think I've seen it called like the uh, adventure mindset where you're kind of just always open and curious and you don't, you know, set this goal for yourself and then not be flexible with it. You're like, this will evolve and that's okay. And I can change my mind and pivot and that's okay. And so now my fear, I guess, like I said, is, is just missing out on those things because I would get too focused on one thing or I wouldn't do the work to be ready to take advantage of one of those opportunities when it came along. What are you most excited about over the next month, six months, year? Is there something that's like really got you excited in adventure or something that, that you're like looking at and you're like, man, that's going to be cool to do? Uh, so the speaking stuff is still really exciting to me. Every time I get a new in inquiry uh, and I'm like, oh, I would love to go speak to that audience or that company, that gets me excited. But I have a children's book coming out in June and that's really been a passion project that in 2019, I was at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum as a Thunderbird. We were doing a meet and greet there 
and I went to their gift shop, which is super cool, all kinds of aviation and space stuff. And I went to the children's books and I was just walking around looking at stuff. And I saw that not a lot of the children's books had female characters. And, you know, I was, I was just starting to realize how impactful I could be in the position I was in just by being visible in a spot like that. And so that stuck out to me. And I was like, huh, I, someday I'm going to write a book and I want it to be in this gift shop. And I, you know, got super busy with the air show season. It got put on the back burner. The pandemic happened. A bunch of air shows canceled. I suddenly had a bunch of time on my hands. So I wrote a children's book. I sent out all these queries to uh, literary agents, got a whole bunch of crickets or no's. So I just didn't understand the welcome to welcome to the welcome to the book no, for world. sure. I did not understand. I was like, guys, I'm literally a Thunderbird pilot right now. Like, this is a great market. Like, come on. I'm like the golden retriever, just like, look at look, I brought this ball. Here it is for you. And like no one reacts. And then Airshow started up again, got super busy. It just sat on the back burner. And then as I pivoted out of active duty last year. On LinkedIn, I ended up connecting with this ghostwriter, reached out asking if I had ever thought about writing a book. And I was like, oh, I'm not ready quite to dive into like a personal development book yet. But I happened to write this children's book manuscript that I just have. Turns out she worked with a publisher who does a ton of children's book stuff, got me connected with them. And I signed a book deal like a week later. And now it comes out in June. So three years in the making. And all right. So yeah, go ahead. We have a we have a deal. We're gonna do this over the microphone. So I'm, you know, thirty minutes from the Smithsonian. So we're gonna have a deal right here now. When you get the book published, I'm sure the book will be in in the Smithsonian gift Hope shop. So. You gotta come. You gotta come to Washington D.C. Yep. and we will host at my house a like book uh, event. And we'll get a bunch of kids to come and we'll sell a bunch of books and we'll do something fun. Um, that's a deal. Oh, that'd be cool. Uh, so we'll make, we'll make that happen uh, as long as you're okay with it, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure out the logistics. And if the Smithsonian does not take your book, we're going to go there with pitchforks <laughs> and signs, you know, the things that they do really well in Washington DC is protest. No, so right. we can, we can create a, create a protest. Um, back to you though, the word badass uh, is a word like I see all the time and I, I, I'm kind of interested in it, intrigued by it. Cause I often see it as it's either two things. One, it either says Mace is a badass woman and that's how it's used like a badass woman, or it'll just say, Oh, Mace is a badass. Um, but I see it in, in both ways. I rarely see, um, Johnny is a badass or Davy is a badass or Danny is a badass. I find that that word is associated with women and sometimes it's badass woman and sometimes it's just badass. When I when people say that to you and I'm sure they do quite often, what's your response to that? How does that sit with you? How does that marinate with you? Yeah, I've never thought about it uh in that way, but I can totally see what you're saying. I always take it as a compliment like I think it's the equivalent of I'm really impressed with this cool thing that you're doing. But now that you bring it up that's very accurate that I commonly see it used for women um, and not for men. And then you get into the look, well, does that mean this is only cool because I'm shocked that you're doing this as a woman, you know? So you can always like think into things that way. But I think over time, you know, phrases in, in culture and society, they evolve and 
they mean different things in different contexts. And all of the people that have said that to me, I know are trying to compliment me. And I always try to kind of just go with the flow and, and not overthink intentions behind things. And, you know, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt uh, or benefit of doubt and, and just take it as a compliment, but you're right. You don't really see it used with men, which is interesting. It is. I brought it up to some of my female clients and the consensus. Well, I've heard a couple different things. I've heard some people say, just call me a badass. You don't need to put the women at the end of it. And then I've heard other women say, yeah, we should own our badassery. And like, let's take ownership over that, that word and hell yeah, we're badasses. Um, so I'm always intrigued by it. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about grit. Yeah. Uh, you just wrote an article on LinkedIn about this idea of like, hey, when do I quit? When do I grit? Um, and that's something I've thought a lot about. Here you are, you know, to get to where you were as a pilot, I'm sure required a lot of passion and perseverance. Uh, you mentioned marathon running earlier. Like, I don't know too many marathon runners that don't have grit. I read a stat once that showed like, 90 some percent of uh, New York city marathon runners finish. Um, and you know, they, they sort of persevere, um, whether it's marathon running or even rock climbing or, or flying, how do you think about grit and, and how do you think about when it's time to maybe not keep going and maybe pivot or quit or whatever the word is that you want to say, I had, um, Annie Duke on the podcast and she wrote a book called quit and she's like, the word pivot's bullshit. She's like, it's quitting. Uh, you're just stopping and starting something else. So um, she's made a case for, you know, hey, it's really valuable to to stop and start. And then her colleague, Angela Duckworth, wrote a book on grit and has studied it. So I'm just curious to get your perspective, given it's something that you recently uh, took a deep dive into and, and wrote about. Yeah, that's funny. So it was actually an interview with Annie that I heard that had me really start thinking about that on another podcast. And I was like, I've never thought about that. And society really condemns quitters. And it it's funny because, I mean, I would not have gotten to where I was without a lot of grit, you know, a lot of being willing to push through the uncomfortable, the uncertain, sometimes the physically uncomfortable. But I think more what she highlights and like the perspective I took on it is making sure that you keep that perspective that that's not just always the default answer, right? It's more nuanced than that. And something that you thought would be the ultimate outcome might not take shape like you imagined. And you should try to have more of an objective opinion on it where you can look at the facts more than just rely on your emotions, which are going to push you to keep going towards what society always rewards, which is the perseverance and the grit. And that sometimes it's not serving your ultimate goal anymore. And sometimes it's just going to keep you in a negative situation or put you in a worse off situation if you keep pushing when you should have pivoted or you should have quit. You know, so, I mean, a pivot is quitting one thing and starting something else. And I actually was just talking to a friend who was going through kind of an identity crisis after getting out of this really long term relationship. And she was like, I, you know, envisioned being with this person the rest of my life. And I all of a sudden realized that I wasn't where I, it was comfortable, but it wasn't where I wanted to be. And I wasn't where I wanted to be 10 years from now. And she felt like that was a huge failure and she felt really guilty about it. 
And that's kind of what I went through after I got divorced as well. But hindsight has shown me that that quitting that opened up space for all of these other amazing things that ended up being, you know, much more fulfilling and much more of a better fit that would have never been options had I not quit. And I just did that with the Air Force, right? Like I was in a career field, like we said, that most people put on a pedestal and I walked away from it at what looks like to an outsider, the pinnacle of success, a high point in my career. I've had people be like, you should have stayed in. You would, you would have become a general. Like that's not how that works, but like all of these things, like you would have had any assignment you could have possibly wanted in the military after that. That's also not how that works, but it pissed people off that I left when I did. And I had like this one specific, I don't like to give trolls on the internet platforms, but I had this one specific person who I talked about, I think pivoting to my new career and how I did that and just some lessons I learned from it. And I got this response that I'm not interested in the opinion of a quitter. And it felt like mm. just this huge attack, like such a personal insult. And he went on and on about like the Air Force wasted money on you. They spent millions of dollars to train you and you quit and walked away like seven years early. So seven years from hitting 20, all this stuff like that would have been better served with someone who stuck it out. All this stuff. He just like went on a full attack. So clearly that person has something going on in their life. But my initial reaction was like, ow, that hurt my feelings. Like, why was that such a painful insult from some faceless person I don't even know? And I felt like being called a quitter was just like so terrible. And I took it really personally. And now that I have some separation from that, I'm like, I did quit that because I was going on to something better for me and I would do it again. Well, and even beyond you, recruit, retain, inspire, uh, like you've created a big social media platform. I went on to the Thunderbird website, by the way, you're still like in their video when you get onto the website. Um, and, uh, I recently had Patty McCord on the podcast and Patty, uh, was in charge of like human resources at Netflix. And I thought this was a really beautiful way to think about it. She said, when, when we fire people or when people leave Netflix to go work at Facebook or Meta or Twitter or whatever it is, she said, we want them to be proud to be from Netflix. And that has really stuck with yeah. me. It's like when we leave something, hopefully you're proud to say, yeah, I'm, I'm proud that I'm from the Air Force. I'm proud that I'm from the Thunderbirds. And if we approach it that way, we become a salesperson for that organization. And it doesn't mean we don't love that organization. We should be proud that we're from there. I see this with athletes who come from challenging environments and, and where they grow up. And they're still proud to be from that place, mm -hmm. even though they don't necessarily want to live in that place anymore. They're still proud to be from there. And and for a lot of people, they should be from there and they should live there or they should stay in the Air Force. For you, you can be proud to be from there and become an advocate, not just for yourself and do what you need to do, but actually the mission, you're probably better off doing what you're doing now. Not probably. You're definitely doing a better job recruiting, retaining, and inspiring than you would have. No offense to the generals, but um, your reach is is more than theirs. Like I feel like that's a that's just like honest and truthful. Um, so 
that's that's my perspective. I don't know if you have any perspective. Oh, I, I appreciate you saying that because I I do think that, you know, I speak highly of my time in the military and all the things that's taught me and all the opportunities that it's given me. And you're right, like getting social media aside, getting in front of these audiences, you know, week after week of, you know, a few hundred people to a few thousand people and then pulling that all over to the business side. And then the children's book, I am 100% still recruiting for the military, just not. And you know what is interesting about it is that when you take military recruiting in general, it can feel almost like this transactional thing for people sometimes where it's like, you know, come join the military, come join the Navy, come join the Air Force. And I can think that can give people like the salesman vibes where they're like, uh, like, I don't know, is this a trap signing on the dotted line? But I think hearing one person's story where it can be authentic and relatable and they can hear the struggles and the successes and see all of it is so much more appealing and can connect with people so much more. And I just love doing that. And I do 100% think you're right. It does bring value to that mission still. And I see that. And so I appreciate that, that you brought that up. I've had a lot of military people on this podcast, all different types of military. And I've spent a lot of time with military people over, over drinks and food. Um, and I do not come from a military family and I wouldn't say a lot of my friends are military, but you know, I have a podcast where I try to find interesting, inspiring people like military's got a lot of them for sure. And where like the phrase, thank you for your service. A lot of them sort of push back on that, uh, when I have conversations with them and, Part of the reasoning, I I believe, if I've listened correctly, is that they feel like they got a ton out of it. So they didn't feel like it was all a one-way street that the military, you know, they were just doing it selflessly. And to me, like any great relationship, whether it's a marriage or a partnership or a university that you attend, it should be a two-way street. Like you should be giving to it and you should be taking from it. Like I don't want my wife to be with me, you know, just out of service. Like I want us to have a partnership where we're both benefiting from it. And somewhere along the way, like some of us got it in our head that it should only be about serving others. Like I always say this, the person that works in the soup kitchen, they're not just doing that altruistically. They're doing it because it fulfills them and it. And yes, it's a great thing to do and be in service to, but you better believe, I hope it lights them up. And if it doesn't light them up, they shouldn't do it. Um, so I, I have done some ranting here as we start to wind down, but uh, I don't know how you feel when people say thank you for your service, but it's something that I hear a lot from people who have served that they're like, it doesn't always resonate because I feel like I signed up voluntarily and um, I'm grateful I did and had an amazing experience and look at what I got from it. Even if they are doing nothing with their military background, they still feel that way. So oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't know how you yeah, feel. Yeah, I never know what, how to respond to people. I just always then thank them. And then we get in this, you know, back and forth. No, thank you. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. Um, for exactly the reason you said, because I'm always kind of just like, no, it was it was fun. I enjoyed it. It gave me all, I saw the world and I all these doors open. I met all these amazing people. Like I should be, thanking someone else for that opportunity. Like you don't need to thank me. 
And so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's kind of become like the default that people say to uh, veterans when they feel like they need to say something, but they don't know what else to say because they don't have any you know personal tie where they could think of something that would resonate more. And I mean, like, like I kind of said with the badass thing, I'm always grateful that they felt the need to say something, but it is kind of awkward because you're like, I, I don't know. I was just, you know, doing my job and I got to do all these cool things. Yeah. All right. We're going to close and look like this is probably the corniest question I'll ask you. And you know, what's coming when I say that, but like the name, right. Mace, like where does the call sign come from originate? Yeah. I have to ask, cause as I was doing research, I didn't see it. I'm sure it's, it's everywhere and I just missed it. But, um, where does, where does it come from? How did you get it? How do you feel about it? Yeah. So you probably didn't find it because in fighter pilot tradition, you only share the whole call sign story in person. And so I've actually worked super hard for it to not end up on the internet. I do share the entire story in my keynotes in person and it's super cool. I will give you the cliff notes version though. Cause I don't want to just be like, no, sorry, <laughs> don't talk about that. Should have told you that at the beginning when you asked me if there was anything I didn't want to talk about. Um, no, I know I did. I <laughs> so fighter pilot call signs, they, you know, usually sound at least kind of cool. And the funny thing is that you don't get to pick them. You get no say in them at all. And they're usually based on something dumb that you did when you were a new pilot. And so everyone has their like horror stories, either something embarrassing, a mistake that you made. Sometimes it's a play on the last name. If you have a last name that could have a really funny call sign, if you stuck it um, in the middle of where your middle name goes, mine was based on a mistake and it was, you know, first assignment in Japan, dog fighting um, mission. So one aircraft against another, you know, air to air maneuvering top gun type stuff that you'd see in the movie and i broke the speed of sound when i shouldn't have um i went supersonic which sounds cool also it's not a not that exciting in the aircraft because nothing happens in the cockpit when you break the speed of sound other than your mock number goes to 1.0 and you're like oh yep check supersonic um but tactically based on the maneuvering we were doing i was not helping myself out by going that fast and so it was stupid and i did not win that fight um, and so they named me Mace after that. And it's an acronym, but I won't tell you exactly what it stands for unless you come see me speak somewhere. Well, when we have Michelle over my house to talk about the book, we're uh we're all gonna get to hear exactly what M-A-C-E stands for. for. Sure. So that is the teaser for those that are in the Washington, DC area that when the book comes out, we're either gonna do it at the Smithsonian or my house, we're gonna do something. Um, look, the the book is called uh, upside down dreams. Yeah. Uh, excited to get that in, in June. And if people want to follow you on social media, I know you're on LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, where can they do that? And where can they find out what you're up to? Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm all over the internet. So Instagram is just at Mace Kern with a little underscore between the call sign and the last name. There's a lot of more casual life stuff there. You know, this new puppy that we have, that's a big pain in my ass and super cute though fitness stuff, cockpit videos. There's a ton of flying videos on Instagram. So that's kind of that venue. And then LinkedIn, I'm Michelle Mace in quotes, Kern. And I do post there like five times a week generally. And that's where I take all the stuff, the lessons learned from my career, things that I really hope other people can learn from and use. And it's been really fun to do that. And it seems like it's resonating really well. So that's kind of the more business, personal development focused stuff. And I do have a website, macekern.com, and you can inquire about speaking stuff through that. But also on LinkedIn, I, 
it's been really cool. The majority of my speaking business comes through DMs on LinkedIn. People just reach out directly and work for whatever company that's looking for a speaker. And a couple months later, I'm meeting them in person in front of the crowd. And so it's it's been really cool to connect it uh, that way with people. Well, I'll tell you, her LinkedIn content is amazing. I have no idea how I found you other than on LinkedIn. Yep. And it, it, someone probably shared something that you wrote or somewhere along the lines. I've been interested in the Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels. I've seen y'all live probably five or six times. Uh, to me, it's one of the most inspiring days of my year, uh, especially in Annapolis where we can be on a boat and just watch. I mean, it's 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 amazing. Yeah. Shout out to my, to Tim Ogden, who served in the Marines and he hosts every year. So this is now he has to host me again uh, relatively soon when, when, <laughs> when those flights happen. If I shout him out on the podcast, Tim, I better get that invite this year. Um, but it is, yeah, it is. I mean, for those that haven't seen them perform, um, I think life, we all should be experiencing awe and inspiration. And and it's certainly an awe-inspiring experience. I also saw y'all fly. I live near a hospital outside Washington, D.C. So during the pandemic, like these flybys, everyone would get in their cars to try to figure out where exactly it was going to be. So it was a fun adventure and and honestly, like a much needed break from the madness of raising kids during a pandemic. So thank you for that as well. Cause I know you were flying during that time. Um, but I highly recommend people follow Michelle on LinkedIn. Her content is amazing. She's a heck of a writer. So I'm sure the the children's book's going to be spectacular. And then she sort of teased at some point, there might be another book uh, down the line that might be geared for the people that are listening to this podcast. Uh, I'm sure that would be spectacular because her content is just really, really good. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. And then Twitter is the other place that I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Mace, Michelle, um, Really, really enjoyed this. Thanks for the time. I know you're busy. Uh, and hopefully we get to meet each other when the book comes out and you are in Washington, D.C. to to celebrate it. So uh, looking forward to meeting you in person. Oh, thank you. I have seen some of the guests that you've had on the show and I'm honored to be among those names. And I really liked the questions we went. We had some that I haven't answered before, which I feel like I've done a lot of podcasts and that's hard to get to. So I liked the deep dives. No one's ever asked me about badass. So now I'm going to start thinking about that. Um, but thanks so much for having me and all your kind words. I really enjoyed it and I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Things will go wrong in a flight, almost every flight. And they might be small and you're like easily, you can easily let them, you know, roll off your back. Or it could be something huge. And you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I just did that. I can't believe that just happened. Like I'm, I'm on a check ride. I'm getting evaluated. I can't, I don't know what's going to happen when we land. This is going to be bad. If you start to let that narrative go in your head, the rest of your flight's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a mess. So as you gain proficiency and you really get good at kind of the mindset, you're like, well, that happened. Nothing I can do about it now. And you, I used to actually visualize this little treasure chest where I would just open it up. I would shove the thing in there and close it and like kick it off the plank as it sank to the bottom of the ocean. And I was like, all right, what is the task at hand that I need to do now? Because dwelling on that is not helping the situation and I can't change it. So we'll deal with it after the fact.